iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. We're very pleased that you could join us for tonight's special event. Tonight, world-renowned chef and author Mario Batali joins us to discuss his latest book and TV series, Spain on the Road Again. In this exciting series, Oscar winner Gwyneth Paltrow, Mario Batali, journalist Mark Bittman, and Spanish, Spanish actress Claudia Basols travel in this anything-goes cross-country road trip. Their fun, spontaneous journey showcases the culinary pleasures of Spain, along with the country's art, history, culture, and music. Spain on the Road Again is currently viewable on PBS and is available for download from the iTunes Store. Tonight's event is moderated by special guest Kate Crater, the senior editor of Food & Wine magazine. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mario Batali and our guest moderator, Kate Crater. Good evening. Hey, buenas tardes. Please um, don't start speaking Spanish to me because I have to confess right now, no hablo espanol. Está no, bien. That's it. No that's problemas. as far as it goes. Um, so I'm excited to be here with you because I understand the last podcast here was Clint, e one of the last podcasts was Clint Eastwood. So you are like the Clint Eastwood the of the chef world. The parallels go on and I on know. and on. I would list them, but we have other things to talk about. Okay. Um, in fact, we're going to talk about Spain on the road again. Whoops. <laughs> no book to help you now. That's right. Um, so the first question is pretty obvious, I think. Why Spain? You're Mr. Italy. Why did you go to Spain? I was lucky enough to... Uh, go to high school in Spain. My dad worked for Boeing Airplane Company and around the time Franco died, my family moved to Spain. So we lived in Madrid when they were still burning the garlic and suffocating some of the food in too much oil, but there was still greatness to be found because of the natural treasures there. So we traveled around Spain all the time and really became familiar with first and then eventually in complete love with the culture, its variations, its regionality. It is entirely different from Italy, but it shares the same great-great-grandmother. And traveling around and tasting and understanding the food and the people became something that was just too good to leave from my own memory. So uh, I dealt with this young man over here, Charlie Pinsky, and his amazing team who shot that show and created that show effectively and got to travel around. And literally, we only touched the edge. We could go back for 36 more shows. But what we did capture was kind of the the core of the new Spain, the, the Spain that understands its magnificent ingredients and that also knows how to treat them very simply. So do you feel like, it, it's actually amazing to hear you talk about that because I, I just think of you, I still, even with that, what you just said, I still associate you with Italy. Are you are now going to be the king of Spanish restaurants? Is that what we're going to look for in you, from you in New York? Uh, let's leave the king out of this. The king. <laughs> Okay. Um, no, I'm not going to be the king of, of that. I'm, uh, what I like to do, as I've done in all of my uh, Italian restaurants, is interpret the great ideology of a particular country or cuisine. And it's regional in Spain, just as it is in Italy. And bring it to here, use the local ingredients, but use the kind of thought process that makes those dishes so delicious where they were born. So we have two Spanish restaurants here, and we may open a third, but right now we're trying to figure out just how to keep the ones we already have open. Well, they are fantastic. I hope you all know all of Mario Batali's restaurants because they are all of them excellent. Um, but back to the show. So you had an unusual um, 
car full of people. Um, how did you come to choose Claudia and Mark Bittman and perhaps most importantly, Gwyneth? The show started as an idea of a collaboration between me and Bittman. So to avoid the bromance factor, we <laughs> threw in, it, as it turns out, I was at this dinner party uh, with Gwyneth and we were talking about all the things we were all gonna do. And when I mentioned this show, she said, boy, I would love to participate. And I said, yeah, sure. That's nice and polite of you. Thank you very much. And you know, we kind of left it at that. I mentioned it to Charlie. We talked about it a little bit. And then just kind of moved on. About three months later, when she heard through somebody else that we were actually starting to really plan it, she called me and said, you're not going to try to cut me out. And that's when I called Charlie. And we had a little talk with her. And, and it turned out she was very interested. And in that sense, it worked out well, but having just one girl and me and Bittman was the wheelbarrow story. So then mm -hmm. Charlie met Claudia and uh, put us all four together. We had never met the, before the very first day that we shot, and uh, it worked out really well. And Gwen's Spanish was really good. Did she speak Spanish before she went, or did she listen to a lot of tapes in the car, or how did she do that? She, uh, I believe, lived there for two or three months as a sophomore or junior in high school and speaks some of the most beautiful Castellano uh, that I've ever heard anybody speak. She just has a natural ability with it. She says she doesn't speak Italian, but she can also speak Italian. So it's, she, some people just have a natural knack for languages, and the rest of us just slog through it and make it happen. Um, I understand that. Now, how would you classify that show? Because it was a really interesting hybrid. In some ways, it was a cooking show. In some ways, it was a reality show. In some ways, it was a travel show. How would you, what did you think of it as? I, d I just don't like the word reality show. So I, I would say that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a poet, it's a poem to what Spanish culture is. We looked at things in a way that was very, from a tourist point of view, but we also had access to things that you wouldn't have as a tourist. So we were able to kind of do a hybrid and it, what I would say hopefully we would answer are the questions that come to your mind when you see something like the Mariscadoras, the questions that we were asking should be the ones, or hopefully reflect the ones that someone who's watching the show would also ask at that time. And in that way, they kind of feel like they were participating. There's more than just a fly on a wall. They're kind of in the car with us as we talk about such things as inane as the Teletubbies and our <laughs> children's favorite toy to how delicious jamón bellota 18 month can be. But now, how different would it have been if there had been no cameras in those cars? Like, would you have been clamming naked or some other <laughs> things? Um, I, I, honestly, I don't think there would have been that much of a change. At a certain point, when there's cameras on you all the time, you get used to them being there and you stop paying attention to them. If the company had been less interesting, it would have been a much more difficult show to do. But the fact that there were four different and distinct opinions and Mark's kind of curmudgeon role was, in fact, Mark, and Gwen is kind of wide-eyed and happy you know, Spanish lover was exactly her and Claudia didn't play anything different than Claudia and I'm basically the same guy I'm always am. So it, it, had, we, had I been with someone who I didn't like or didn't know or who we didn't have passions that we could share together, it might have been a different show, but I doubt there would have ever been any naked clamming. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see from the excerpts. There you go. Um, what, um, but you also had special guest stars on that show, like Michael Stipe standing in the middle of the road. Was, yes. That was a great the surprise. The random hitchhiker. The random hitchhiker. But you knew about it, right? I knew about it. And it just took us a lot He was supposed to be in the grilling scene that preceded the driving scene. Uh -huh. But it just took him a lot longer because he's a rock and roll guy. He sleeps late <laughs> and shows up whenever he wants. 
But we finally got him, and it was like, all right, hold him over there. We'll just drive down the street and bump into him. So did you know it? Like, did you have an earpiece, and they were telling you? No, they you just said he's going to be on the road somewhere. And it, as it so happened, it, as it followed the line directly that I said, we could drive for 200 kilometers and not see one single person. And she didn't know, and she's an old friend of Michael's as well, and it was just a really, it was a funny moment. Of course, the bloggers would have you believe otherwise. No, I thought it was, I, I thought it came off as, as just this wonderful spontaneous thing, and then eating all together in Barcelona. At Enopia, which was uh -huh. one of the best meals we had. It was spectacular. It looked, I have to say, it looked delicious. But now you, I heard rumors that you were driving pretty fast in Spain. You and Gwyneth are fast drivers, is that right? What is fast? <laughs> They build these cars to go fast. They build the roads to go fast. That said, I'm sure we did not break the speed limit by any stretch of the imagination. Really? <laughs> no, they, in, in Europe, people just usually drive between 100 and 120 miles an hour. It's just the roads are that way. <laughs> and when the cars go to 240 kilometers an hour, you do the math. I mean, you never take it up to 240. No. Okay. That's safe. Um, My lawyer's in the fourth row. I'm trying to work on this. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, now, so do you think having done this kind of cooking show, because it did seem like a cooking show, you're grilling in the vineyards, you're eating clams, do you think that's sort of the new paradigm for cooking shows? Because I like that idea rather than seeing someone sitting in a kitchen, you know, very, in, in front of a very like staid camera, like cooking pasta and stirring it. Well, very... all of the cooking segments that we did, we, we had no food stylist, we had no kitchen equipment. Mm -hmm. So basically we kind of made it up on the fly and it just seemed to naturally work. Um, I, I don't know if it's going to become the new style, and I don't think necessarily that what we refer to in the food TV business as the dump and stir program is over. <laughs> There's a lot of things that a lot of people like to enjoy and see and learn about, and you know, the, as the Food Network and Food TV and PBS and Gordon Ramsay and Marco Pierre White and all the people that are doing different things with Food TV evolve, it'll be interesting to see how things come out. There's certainly never too much beautiful footage of a place that shows its tradition, its core, and the people that love to do and make what becomes that region's real kind of beating heart. I don't think that people will ever get tired of programming like that. And how far ahead did you have to plan? Were, were any of those, or some of them must have been spontaneous, like when you were clamming, like that, that might have been clammed, but when you decided to do a vineyard grilling situation? Right, we, just, we knew where we were going to go. We always had a box of food that we had just picked up, and if we were going to cook it, we'd cook it. It was more often based on the fact that Mark Bittman was always hungry. <laughs> yeah, that came through, kind of. Yeah. Um, so let's um, talk about Gwyneth for a second. She's, um, a lot's been made recently of her diet. She's uh, vegan or quasi-vegan, I think. No. Um, no? No, Gwyneth doesn't eat uh, farm-raised animals. She doesn't eat meat or anything with four legs. She will eat wild birds and fish and vegetables. Mm -hmm. But she's not so dogmatic about it. I think she's taken a, a little bit of holier-than-thou heat for the Goop thing, the uh, website that mm -hmm. is kind of cool, but what it is. And uh, she eats well. She's a good eater. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's one thing that most people don't understand, that she is very capable of out-eating me in a, in a paella contest. Are you kidding? No way. In a, in a very easy win. Wow. She must exercise nine hours a day and have the heartbeat of a small bird, but she <laughs> definitely can pack it in. Right, Chuck? She Is it true? No, she has a cookbook coming out. Are you going to help her with that? She hasn't asked me to help her yet. Um, I think it's going to be kind of a memoir and the food of her family and the things that she thinks people should be making. But her co-author's in the audience. Maybe after that we can talk with her. <laughs> Julia Tertian, are you here? She's hiding. 
And she's over there on the road, too. She's been working with Gwyneth for the last four months, three months on it. Four months. Yay. Julia, you'll have to give us some inside scoop on that. Uh, Julia Tertian will be interviewing in the back room <laughs> at 8.15 tonight. Now, and has Gwyneth, like, um, has she helped you with fashion stuff? Is she sort of your stylist oh, now? Oh, yeah. Look at how. I've New color crops or something? I have so improved this year in fashion. <laughs> I, I, think the, I think she actually suggested the third gibbet on the right there. Really? No, she say fashion for me is, uh, I'm more about style than I'm about fashion. Thank you. Mm. But I mean, her clothes are almost too, I mean, some of the things she wore were so fashionable that I don't understand them. <laughs> like, that's very fashionable. And what would she say? She would, I mean, she knew it. I mean, she wore stuff that could have been made in the 1600s and the 1800s. And the, I mean, she, she has an eye and she understands all that stuff I don't. She wore that on the road in Spain? Yeah, there were some crazy looking suits and some, certainly a lot of very gothic looking footwear. <laughs> but not when she was clamming. Not when she was clamming. I believe she had bare feet then, or maybe no, she had wellies on. I have to say, you look, you look great. Have you been on the Spanish diet? Like, That's it, ham. Ham? Just ham, that's all I ate, jamon. Jamon, which is available here now, right? Jamon Iberico? It's, well, the jamon Iberico that they shipped in the last eight months has suddenly stopped because the USDA has decided that the hoof on it is a challenge. So they're mm -hmm. no longer importing anyone's with hoofs. The ones that are here have doubled in price from their remarkably low $80 a pound wholesale value. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll start shipping the new modified hoofless ones at twice that price uh, in a matter of two months. Is it gonna be worth it to buy it? Would you buy it at $160 a pound? What good's money if you don't trade it for something? <laughs> It's Especially a remarkable, ham, it's right? a remarkable product. It, the, the, believe me, there are no more nervous and attentive people on the planet right now than the prosciutto di Parma producers. Because they've right. been doing all right, but they haven't caught on to the wave that it's the intermuscular fat of this particular Iber Iberian pig that will allow you to age that ham an extra even two years. And what you get when that slowly dehydrates a little bit, but you have the fat to keep it moist inside, it creates an entirely different level of poetry in pork. And it's something that once you taste it, you realize they are not even, they're not even comparable. You wouldn't put prosciutto and jamón bellota on the same plane. They're two entirely different animals. They're both delicious. They both have their place at certain tables, but the jamón of Spain is without a doubt the, so far the apex of the pig. So I should save my money and invest in... Save your money or have the food and wine company order a couple of hams for the next Christmas party and take them home. Around, exactly. We'll cure them. Will you help us cure them? Of course. Yay. Um, I also want to hear about some of your highlights. Was there anything that happened off, you know, that wasn't included in the final shows? Were there some things that you were just passionately crazy about? Um, I think the opportunity to hang in a couple of the situations was really cool. Um, hanging out with Ferran um, on the top of the casino... I mean, it was well documented, but he's just a crazy guy. And then we went over to the museum and stood in front of paintings while he pontificated about the placement of chefs as artists in his mind. And spending a four-hour day with him is like reading a, a really great, intensely consuming book. So having that was uh, one of the great times. We saw him a couple of times. Uh, hanging out with Frank Geary for a couple hours was fun. It's amazing. Because he's kind of wacky. And uh, I became a real... Um, an even deeper fan of his work after speaking with him and 
understanding his kind of stoner Southern California mentality <laughs> as it relates to how things work and how he does stuff. Um, I really enjoyed Mallorca and Menorca. I think those are real unsung heroes. The ensaymada, that little breakfast pastry that they make with the pork fat and the mm -hmm. sugar was unbelievably delicious. And the little old Zen master dude that's working in the 530-year-old oven, he cleaned up really well for the show, but <laughs> apparently the day before he was like some pirate dude, and it was uh, meeting him and talking to him. The, 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 the real story isn't necessarily some special moment. It's just kind of the general high level of food awareness. Uh, about three years ago, I spent a couple of uh, weeks with the idea that I would prove that, in fact, the restaurant chefs have created this super avant-garde thing and it has left everyone else in the regular world completely behind. Mm -hmm. And I found, against what my thesis was, that in fact there is a generally high level of gastronomic uh, passion and understanding. And although people aren't going to use an immersion circulator at the house, they certainly are cooking on a higher level than I would have expected in the regular home. And they realize that the mantle, the kind of the, the, the ability, the, 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 the international eye is on them because of restaurants like El Bouilly and like guys like Sergio Rola and all the, you know, the ten hot chefs you read about in every mm -hmm. magazine these days. The regular person, however, is aware of them and has elevated their palate and their need for super quality food. And as I've often made the parallel in the last 20 years, 30 years ago, when Marco Pierre White was just getting his start, the English had an amazing amount of great products, but had for the longest time been overcooking them. And they realized, let's just not burn it so much, and it will become its own thing. And English products are now very famous, and the same thing happened to Spain. It was just a few years behind that. And then these gastro molecular gastronomists moved on and took it to another level and created something that is in its entire own field. Now, I was uh, talking with a couple of our chef friends in the last couple of weeks about this kind of move to molecular ga gastronomy that effectively started in Spain. And in, as it turns out, now in all the cooking schools, they're teaching them how to use this algae and the spherification processes. And the way that all these guys that kind of, what seem like, oh, that's just a fad, it's going to go through a pendulum and then it's going to come back to all the traditional stuff. It seems now that the things that may have started in Spain 15 years ago are going to enter the popular culture as part of the normal canon in the cookery world. Mm -hmm. And that's the interesting thing that I see, that they have really led that, that modernization of technique. That's not to say that they're going to stop roasting chickens anywhere, but that you can spherify something that you can intensify by reduction and then throw it in a cold liquid and then hand someone something that is completely challenging what, like say you made a perfect chicken stock and reduced it down so it, the intense explanation of the bird as it was. And you pop it in your mouth like a little tiny thing and squeeze it and it pops out and the whole Proustian kind of Madeleine moment of what a great roasted chicken can be is captured in that odd little moment. And it's kind of, it's kind of Willy Wonka <laughs> and it's also Ferran Adria, but it's also, if it's done in the right way, magnificently delicious and pleasing. And I think what happened with Ferran over the time, and I've eaten at his restaurant eight years, eight times, First two times I was there, I was just fascinated by the whole idea. The next two times I was there, it was just like, wow, this is so provocative, but is it really delicious? Mm -hmm. The last two times I was there, it was like he'd come around from having to merely provoke me and understood, mm -hmm. and I say me as the populace. Mm -hmm. And now he's uh, all about libidinal pleasure and the physical gustatory components of something delicious and thought-provoking and remarkable and unique to where it is. And it's just, it's another level of understanding what food can and should be.
And do you see that coming here now? It seems a little bit as if, like, you go to gastropubs. There's so many gastropubs, so many burgers now. But it does seem like some of them have adapted some of those avant-garde cooking techniques, like they'll sous vide the salmon that are on top of the crostini. Right, exactly. Well, Wiley is our, our probably our right. best practitioner. Wiley Dufresne has a restaurant called WD50. In Chicago, there seems to be a hotbed of this. Mm -hmm. There's a place called Moto. There's, there's Alinea. Alinea. Uh, there's a place called Schwa. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're kind of pushing the edges both in the presentation world by pushing a lot of the food onto the rim of the plate <laughs> and also thinking a lot about this technique and sadly enough some of them are even coming up to you and you put a bite of something in your mouth and they spray you with something in the face. <laughs> and it's just like, that was not what I was hoping would happen right now. But that said, the, the pendulum will go out on that. Mm -hmm. And then the resounding and, and the resonant, not resounding, the resonant technique that actually makes sense and can be actually reproduced in a good way will become the legacy of Spain in the latter part of the 20th century in terms of gastronomic evolution. Do you see Spain is still being, because right now it is at the forefront of cooking around, around the world. I mean, it is, no one, people aren't looking to France anymore, maybe England a little bit, maybe Italy a little bit, but really Spain is where everybody goes. Do you think that's going to continue for a while? I hope so. I think it merits it. I think it's an interesting thing. I think there's also a, a lot of still very traditional cooking going on in Spain. We were at... Uh, a place called La Clara in Barcelona mm -hmm. that is classic Catalan cooking that is absolutely delicious and they would never spherify anything. <laughs> and that said, you can have a restaurant like that in the same town as a restaurant by Arola, Sergio Arola. Right. And they both live well and the people understand the differences between the two and, and the whole thing is united by the fact that La, La Boqueria is perhaps one of the most visually stunning food markets in the whole planet. But you were also impressed, I mean, that goes back to, I think you were impressed by the quality of the high-level restaurants, you know, that you thought, in as much as there were, like, women cooking chickens that had been singing in their backyards, and the very simple food, there was um, some fantastic food that you ate at the three Michelin stars restaurants. Yes, right? uh, probably the greatest. I'm uh, not the biggest fan of the third Michelin star throughout the planet, as what I'm afraid it has done in the last 40 years is pretty much guarantee that the super rich could eat the same thing wherever they traveled throughout the world. That is to say, <laughs> caviar and foie gras and truffles. smoked oysters and truffles and Scottish smoked salmon and what should have been happening and what has actually started to happen in the last 10 or 15 years is the celebration of the geospecificity of something that is absolutely remarkable. Something you can't get anywhere else. You can get here and they won't ship it somewhere. So if I'm in the southwest coast of France, I want to eat the beautiful palourde. I want to eat that specific oyster. Uh, if I'm in the Côte d'Azur, I do not want to eat foie gras, but I do want to eat the little stuffed vegetables and the soca. Mm -hmm. So in traveling around that way, the third Michelin star became kind of a loss for me because mm -hmm. it was almost always a little too formal and not very reminiscent of anything that I hadn't had anywhere before. Well, there's this woman called Carmen Ruscalleda who has a restaurant in St. Paul. And her it's a 30-seat restaurant, and everything was so well thought and she had a touch of these little spheres and capsules and things but it was predominantly the beautiful evolved cooking of the very specific place where she was born she started there maybe 15 or 20 years ago with a little sandwich shop and now it just became a three-star Michelin restaurant really and it was a spectacular experience and it reinvigorated my love for fine dining on a level where the fine doesn't have to intimidate anybody nor tell anybody that they don't know what they want it's more to say, listen, we can really make this an experience about right here, right now. That sounds great. I want to go there. You should. Everyone should. St. Paul. Carmen Ruscaeda. <laughs> Tell her I said hello. So um, now what's next? So Spain on the road again, again. 
or no Italy? actually we're talking um with people in italy and in croatia wow and it would seem that we could do kind of a hook together of some of the lesser known it would be silly of me to go to do a show in italy where You've you saw every inch of it, right? well I've, I've gone through it but also so has lydia so has jada so has it would be sad to go to a restaurant and say so give us your best dish and there's you know, Lydia's cookbook over the edge, and it's like, <laughs> she was just here last week. Not, not that you have to constantly find only new things to find great things, but there would be no reason for me to show someone the same pizzeria in Naples that everyone's been going to on both PBS and the Food Network for the last seven years. So maybe the pizza show wouldn't be pizza, it would be about yeast and water buffaloes, and how eventually they will come together to make a great pizza. And the same thing with Croatia, the fact that they're just across the Adriatic from some of Italy's most famous gastronomic regions is, is something that will show people something they don't know because they haven't been there, but also demystify it because it's really about delicious northern Adriatic Mediterranean general culture food. Have you spent time in Croatia? I've been there a couple times. Really? It's just over the border from Joe's Winery, so oh, that's right. sometimes you shoot down there for there's a couple of towns south of Trieste uh -huh. where they make the most, there's these things called skie which are little tiny shrimp like the main sweet shrimp that are in season right now, and they just saute them with just a tiny bit of olive oil and put them over this white soft polenta that is the texture of a Yum. thin bechamel. And it's just like, ugh. Yes. Can you be passing out food right now? I should. <laughs> I didn't bring any, I'm sorry. Man, so will you open a Croatian restaurant and Joe can do his, Joe Bastianich can do his wine? That's not a bad idea. We wouldn't, I, I don't think we'd be the first, but we might mm -hmm. be the one that made it a hit. Brings it out. Yeah. Is there anywhere else in the world that you would want to go, like travel around in a fun car, do a fun road trip? I can't think of anywhere else in the world I wouldn't want to go, Kate Crater. I think that traveling around with someone to see something new or even something old with a new perspective, I'd be happy to drive around Iowa and just talk to pork farmers and eat corn. And as well, I'd be very interested to go to anywhere in Southeast Asia. Northern Africa, Central Africa, Western Africa. We could do shows of islands I've never been to. Magnificent beach cuisine from around the world. <laughs> you guys will all be in your own boats then, right? right? I mean, there's, there, is, there is a nugget of something very fascinating and interesting to any indigenous dish. And whether you have to go eat the beak of the bird like Tony Bourdain or that other mm -hmm. crazy guy, or you just go eat something that they normally make. There's a fascination with that kind of... Uh, veracity, that truthfulness to it, and that would be what always drives it. Being in a pretty place or a unique place is, would certainly make it easier or more likely for Americans, the biggest viewing audience, to watch. But there's tons that no one even has even thought about, let alone tasted or eaten for American TV. So it could go on for years, <laughs> years. We can name every country and keep mm. talking. Well, what do you think um, the, the, the readers of Food & Wine magazine want to see? What do they want to see? Um, they want to see you sort of wherever you go, but I have to say there's a big, we're seeing a big interest in South America right now. Yeah. Apparently, Fran Adria was, um, there's, um, you know, these big food conference, conferences, mm -hmm. and there's a lot, a lot of interest in the ingredients, like from the Amazon forest and stuff like that. Um, there's just, I don't know if it's like, you know, sort of another Latin culture that is breeding a lot of things, but it seems like it's diverse, there's a lot of fantastic cooking, there's some really up-and-coming chefs, so I'm sort of fascinated in South America right now, but I love the idea of Croatia. I, I think it's beautiful, I don't know the food very well, and I always like to, you know, learn something new, so I think they must have like a kind of cooking that 
it's delicious and authentic, but also for me, Very something light new. light and kind of unique in its own way, absolutely. Great. Well, I think this is a good time to take questions. I think it's a good time to take questions. All right, everybody, wake up. <laughs> is there anything you want to eat? Is there anything I won't eat? Durian. It's the smell of a Texaco gas station bathroom in the middle of the summer, concentrated into a fruit in Southeast Asia that has the texture of cold poop. Other than that, it's great. <laughs> no, there are signs in the trains in Thailand, no smoking and no durian. It smells like Limburger cheese on a bad, bad, bad day. Well, there's an old adage about the stone soup. It was about a soldier walking into a town and not being able to find anybody to give him anything to eat. So he started building a pot, a fire, and put a pot on top and started watching it boil. And everyone came up to him and said, what are you making? He said, oh, I'm making stone soup. It's my specialty. Do you want to throw anything in? And some lady came by and gave him a couple carrots. And then another guy came by and gave him an onion. And then some other farmer came by and gave him something else because they all wanted to taste this amazing delicacy. Mm -hmm. Well, by the end of the day, he had created this magnificent stew from all the people who wouldn't have previously given him anything. That's the stone soup recipe I know. Yes? Do I know anything about Peruvian food? I would say that perhaps the next big American import will probably be Peruvian food. A lot of my friends are traveling there. I've been invited to go there over the next three months for like a one-week visit. And from all I can tell, it seems to be one of the most fascinating cuisines in the Western world. And I'm very interested in finding out. That said, I do not know enough about it, which is why I must go immediately. <laughs> and there's a chef, right? Isn't Gaston Acurio planning to open? Like, he's a big chef in Peru, and I think he's planning to open a restaurant here. Is that right? Do you know him? Excellent. So what's your favorite dish outside of the ceviche world? Right? So the rich part. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Right. Wow. Right. Well, I can say for sure that within the year, I will definitely spend some time in Peru. We were in Ecuador last year for spring break, and then just the natural deliciousness of the food has a very, and I hate to use such a crappy reference, but there's a European feel to it. Not that it tasted European, but that it was whole. There was, there was a, the, the feeling that it was a very well-developed cuisine, both in tradition and in its novelty and the newness and stuff, and that's always the sign of, of great people, and tasting delicious things like that is... So I, I'm sure that America is going to wake up to South American food in a very big way in the next couple of years. Kate Crater is going to write about it. Keep exactly. An eye on it. Yes. How my recipes don't have vegetables? Oh, that particular one. Oh, the sformato. Uh, yeah, we decided to get rid of all those pesky vegetables <laughs> and, and just bring it right down to uh, dairy products 100% with eggs. And that's, in fact, what it is. And as a matter of fact, right now we're writing the cookbook for the Oto Enoteca Pizzeria, and it should be out before Christmas. So you'll be able to have that recipe. But I, it's already online 
on the outdoor website. Yeah. The trick to any sformato is cooking it very slowly in a water bath because you want those eggs to cook so soft that they become creamy. It's the same thing with scrambled eggs. If you cook them too fast, they're always nasty. My, you mean my last meal in New York? That's too hard, I'm sorry. <laughs> I could list my last week. No, if I was gonna choose one restaurant right now, the last one that I would eat at would be Pearl Oyster Bar. Oh. Because it's unique, it's delicious, and it's everything that I always feels good. Of course, it would be a couple of days long, that meal, because I'm not <laughs> leaving yet, quickly. <laughs> yes. You, yes. I love Indian food. Um, uh, one of my ex-sous chefs is living in Mumbai right now doing a uh, Fulbright scholarship. And if it wasn't so far, I, had, I would have already been there. I love the way the food plate tastes. I love the uh, kind of understanding of the spice, but not overpoweringly hot, but hot enough to keep it interesting. I will never be able to open one because I don't know enough about Indian restaurants, but I love to go to them. And I was at Devi like two weeks ago and had just the most delightful meal. I really love that place. Yes? She says that uh, being a college student, she has no kitchen access. Mm. What would be a recipe to make? Well, do you have a heat source? <laughs> Ah, but you have electric burners. Well, then you can make anything. Only, only bad cooks complain about the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> if you can get something to boil, then you're already cooking, so don't worry about it. Are you worried more about the finance or the technique? All right. Well, what you need to get is a, a piece of iron, <laughs> uh, brush it with oil, go to a grocery store and pick up something called Nantucket Bay scallops. They're around for probably another two or three weeks. You don't have to do anything to them. The only thing you do have to do is not overcook them. So because you're calientally challenged, mm -hmm. <laughs> you should just heat that little griddle up as long as you can. Don't put any oil on the griddle. Put a little bit of oil on the scallops and a little tiny bit of salt, and then set them on there and do not move them. Resist the urge to shake it and make them lose their liquid. Let them sear on there for two to three minutes until they're deep, dark, golden brown. Never turn them over, and then just lift them off and put them in mm -hmm. your mouth like that. This is, um, this is a good moment for me to say, too. We, um, we did a story with Mario um, in our September issue, and we got some of the recipes from, this, from the great cookbook, and they were almost all of them really, really simple and absolutely delicious. Like, usually when we see ingredient lists that are sort of short, we get really nervous. Like we think they're gonna be boring or not that good. And they were fantastic. Like we clams, I think we did a version of the clams that yes. you guys were just doing that was dead simple. All you really need is a pot and some good clams, a little white wine, steam them for a couple minutes, splash them with a little olive oil. They were really great. The tortilla espanol was the best one we'd ever tasted at food and wine. It was really awesome. So I have to recommend you can get the cookbook or you can go to foodandwine.com and Google Mario's recipe Spain, and you can get some really great ones. What it really comes down to, even with the lack of any great equipment or even a reliable heat source, is if you spend your money not so much on the 17 chef knives that you see us use <laughs> on TV, and in fact get two good knives, 
one good pan and spend the rest of the money on really good ingredients, you will always eat well. And that's the key. And it's the simple things and the things that don't take a lot of effort that are the ones that most impress chefs, too. Because at the end of the day, technique, blah, 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 blah. But if I can have a perfect scallop that sings of something regional and something that didn't, I, I couldn't impress you more if you were a cook and I just serve you these scallops and sometimes you don't even have to cook them. Sometimes you just squeeze a little tangerine juice on top of them, some salt, pepper, a sliced jalapeno. That impresses me. It's the confidence not to have to trick me that makes mm -hmm. me happy about eating other people's food. Yes, ma'am. You. I'm sorry, you said what are the chef knives? Um, what are the chef knives and what sort of pan? Uh, it, there are a thousand different brands of knives out there and you can spend anything from $40 to $4,000 for one knife. I would say find what your budget is, but don't spend more than $100 on one knife. Go and get as much um, hard steel, what do they call it? Um, High carbon steel. Uh, the Japanese knives are beautiful. There's great German knives. There's good French knives. Chicago Cutlery is probably the best deal in the country because they just didn't have to ship it that far. And then take care of it. You know, take care of the knife. You have to hone it every two or three weeks. You have to sharpen it almost every use. You rub it with a little bit of oil. You treat it with the respect, and you'll get exactly what you want out of it. In terms of a pan, if I was only going to have one pan, I would get a cast iron skillet and beat the crap out of it for about a month. And then you will have virtually a nonstick pan, you will have a plancha, you will have a paella pan, and you'll have a pan to cook all of your spaghetti in, in one pan. And it's also the cheapest pan. Sure. And what size knives? Like there's so many, you can get knives. I would like get everything. a 10-inch chef knife and a paring knife and a bread knife. With those three things, I can conquer the world. What's, like that. Right, I'm quick. <laughs> yes. What kind of food do I prefer at home and how is it different from my professional cooking? Well, the scallops that I just described, I made them last night. <laughs> and we served them with boiled cauliflower drizzled with new oil from uh, Tuscany and a little bit of salt. And it, the food that I do at home is often very simple or it'll be a little kind of a stewy, soupy thing because you're never really sure when you're gonna wanna exactly eat. So having things that you have to cook a la minute, like in the restaurant business, is sometimes a waste of time as are presenting plates with drippy sauces at the house. Home cooking should be about a big platter of something that you can serve each of your guests from. And the reason they love it and the reason that it separates that from the restaurant cooking is because, in fact, you can't find stuff like that in restaurants very often. So I'm more about celebrating a whole rack of pork or a very nice piece, a, a, a regularly braised osobuco with a little saffron couscous or something to go with it, or just simple fish, just seared on one side, finished on the other side, drizzled with balsamic vinegar from Modena and a little cucumber salad. I like the simple stuff. But that's also because I don't want to spend six hours cooking. I'll spend an hour. Yes. Excellent question. Uh, was there any Moroccan or Northern African influences in the cooking in Spain? And in fact, I would say that in Granada, and points south from there, the cooking, in my opinion, is more Northern African than it is, in fact, truly Castilian. And that's the same thing when you're in Italy. When you're in Sicily, you're much closer to Tunisia than you are to Milan. And it's all about the geography, what makes food and why people eat it. The fact that the Moors were there from 
711 to the 1490s left an incredible mark. And one of the most fascinating things about Spain is traveling around where there was, first of all, kind of the nascent Christianity, then there was the Moorish culture, then there was Christianity piled on top of that, and over here on the side was where the Jewish culture was, a town like Toledo that captured and had all of those three great groups of people living together and thinking together and eating together created such a magnificent melting pot of both the culture and its art and the food and the literature that you really got kind of the best, I'm like getting goosebumps, I'm so excited <laughs> about it. But you get the best of all three things with the crud edited out. And when you're in Granada, or you're in Cordoba, or you're in Sevilla, or you're in any part of the Point South, are such a, it's an entirely different kind of cooking. And, and the kind of pomegranate culture, and the rice culture, and the culture of the Moors, and the almonds, and the sweets. It, it's, a, it's one of the great things about traveling in Spain, because in Italy, pretty much everyone's agreed that they're going to be Italians. And, and they'll all use pasta, or polenta, or rice. But other than that, they don't even trust the guy from the next town let alone the next <laughs> province, let alone the next region. And a cook in Puglia would never bring anything from the Veneto. They just wouldn't do it. Well, the Spaniards have taken a different kind of take on it, and they were happily importing these different influences and celebrating different times in the historical culinary traditions. And there are restaurants that will only cook Northern African or Moroccan-influenced food or the Moorish food of a particular group of people that lived in a particular time, or a particular king, for that matter, that resided in Alhambra. And understanding and seeing that and tasting it adds another kind of piquancy to the whole idea of gastronomic travel, because you're not just seeing you know, the same linguine with clams five maize made by five different cooks. You're seeing an entirely different take on cooking as it goes from Cordoba to Alhambra. So yes, I know I said too much, but <laughs> what? Well, my, the easy answer was yes, yes, and yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think we have time for about two more questions. Okay, down here. They always get you with these exact questions. <laughs> um, if I, I would say the one that most surprised me, and I grew up, I mean, I spent my high school days in Madrid, and Castilla-La Mancha was one of the great things. We spent a lot of time in, um, in and around um, Barcelona. But that said, the one that most surprised me, and it was well represented here in uh, Cambados, was the Galician region and the shellfish and the seafood that dives immediately up into a vertiginous and verdant forest filled with magnificent meat and cider and the culture of the fabada. The whole thing, I mean, I just saw, I waited, I don't know why, but I just saw Vic, Vicky Cristina Barcelona. And we were in the, you know, the dessert shop that they were at. And, and Woody Allen actually has like four statues in that town. And uh, Oviedo. And, and, and tasting and understanding that northern part is, was one of the most surprising and, and satisfying, delicious things. I'd have to say, though, that those berberechos, those little clams that are kind of like a cross between a scallop and a clam, I could eat those every day for the rest of my life and not miss anything else. So, Galicia. Yes. You're looking for a hero and I'm too old. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I'm kind of hoping you're going to go with me, buddy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, all right, come on, jump in the car. I'll take you for the ride. 
That said, I think that David Lieberman tried to do that, and I don't know why it didn't work for the Food Network, but that, I mean, he started on Yale on, like, public access TV, right? And I guess his show, I think maybe that college students want to eat really well, and, but I think they want more than just someone working on a toaster oven to show them what they can and can't do. And I think that they perhaps prefer the fantasy travel of Gwyneth Paltrow steaming clams to someone showing them what to do with last week's waffles. That's just a guess, though. I'm just thinking that. Since you dogged me on the age, I had to put you right back there, you know? Exactly. No, I was in college, too, and, you know, we had to work through it. You, know, you, have, to, you have to suffer to become an artist. Yes, in the back. I'm sorry? Ah, my favorite vendors at the Union Square. Well, I, do you ever see me there? Because I'm there pretty often. All right. Um, you know, I don't even remember the names, because all I do is I go in, you come in uh, in front of Whole Paycheck, you go right, <laughs> and there is Faffenroth, is that the guy's name? The one with the killer garlic and the weird, the weird uh, root vegetables. Um, I loved Coach Farm until they left. Um, I'm a big fan of Ted Blue. Uh, he brings in the Scrapple, as well as the uh, chili peppers. I love um, Franca. I, I believe it's Buried Treasure, because she saves raspberries for us all through raspberry season. I like the whole thing. I mean, the, the bottom line is, if you really want to improve the quality of your life, you stop going to the grocery store and buying stuff that was brought from somewhere else, and you buy the things that were grown by someone whose name you can know and whose family you can support by buying a few carrots every couple of days. And understanding the seasonality is what all great cooking is all about, and that doesn't mean you can't get the odd, you know, something exotic in the middle of the winter to kind of shine its light on you while you're having cabbage and beans for the next two months. But there are great things that are available around here that, that the, the green market is the core of what great cooks can have. It is, it is what they should be doing with their time and it costs a little bit more and that's where you should spend the more money as opposed to on the plastic bag situation at any grocery store and some grocery stores wake up I mean right now basically it's the last week in February it's still five and a half to six weeks until we see our first ramp and once you see ramps then it just starts to slide off the hill Ramps, if you're not familiar, is a member of the leek family. It's the first kind of thing that pokes its little nose up out of the brown stuff around the second or third week in April in and around this region here. And uh, it captures the beauty of what great cooking can be in that you cannot plant them, and they are only around for about six weeks a year. And if that doesn't teach Americans something, then nothing will. But it does, and in fact, everybody celebrates the ramps when they're around, and understanding and trying to get a hold of that is what we should all be doing. And if, if I can help even five people understand that, then I've done a pretty good job. I want to thank you all for coming. I know they're telling me to be down. We want to thank Mario and Kate for coming out tonight. Spain on the Road Again can currently be seen on PBS and is available for download on the iTunes Store. It is also available as a DVD. Mario's food can be enjoyed at any one of his many restaurants here in New York City. You've been a wonderful audience. Thanks again for coming out. To our listeners at home, learn more about what's happening here at the store by visiting apple.com slash Soho. Have a good night. <laughs>